relief factor, pain relief that's natural, pain relief that works, and pain relief that attacks the source of the pain. That's the experience of tens of thousands of Americans who are taking Relief Factor right now. See their incredible video endorsements at relieffactor.com and then order your three-week quick starter pack for just $19.95. That's less than a dollar a day. Find out if it can work for you like it works for me by ordering your three-week quick starter pack today. Relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. Be the next success story. Going deeper on the big issues that matter to you. This is your exclusive podcast, America First, one-on-one, with me, Sebastian Gorka, former strategist to President Donald J. Trump. Let me start by saying there is way too many of us in this little room. What are we doing? They said this was outdoors. It's not. They lied to us. We're in a hermetically sealed tent right now. I would not have come to this. Why is there a roof? It's more important that we have three chandeliers than that we make sure we don't kill Eugene Levy tonight. That is what has been decided. This is insane. I went from wiping my groceries to having Paul Bettany sneeze in my face. That was, of course, Seth Rogen. I I think he's meant to be doing comedy, but it's rather a superb commentary on the quote-unquote elite from the uh, Emmys this weekend. Let's get somebody to discuss what it all means in terms of the elite, how they see themselves, and the rest of us plebs with our very special guest for America First one-on-one. He is the author of superlative works like The Madness of Crowds. He is Douglas Murray. Douglas, welcome to One on one. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let me just start. I don't usually do this, but let me just start. You don't need any of this, but let's see how large we can make your head. When we had Calvin Robinson on, who's another truth teller par excellence, just a couple of weeks ago, we always asked, you know, a kind of what to do question at the end. And I asked, what kind of books do you recommend to our millions of listeners and viewers? And he said, look, anything, anything out there that uh, exemplifies discussions on truth and beauty, like Roger Scruton, all works by Douglas Murray. So uh, that's a uh, kudos to you, Douglas. Kudos to you. Um, let- yeah, it's very kind of Calvin to have said that. Yeah. So He's um, a great man. I want you to comment on that cut. We're going to discuss the roles of the elite, the the rise of new populist formulations. But for those of uh, our listeners and viewers who aren't familiar with you, who've been hiding under a rock for the last few decades, uh, tell our listeners who Douglas Murray is and what your mission in life is. Well, I'm a writer. I've been a writer for twenty years. Uh, I write books. I write articles uh, for all of the media uh, in the UK and some in the US, and uh, I, I, I regard it as being um, one of my self-appointed roles to try to cut through uh, the nonsense of the era, uh, to try to prick pomposities where they exist, uh, to try to break through lies where they're told, uh, to correct them. Uh, I believe that that is a role of writers, one of the primary roles. And for anyone who cares about this sort of thing, uh, our era is an enormously uh, interesting time to be working. Uh, because, of course, we live in a time where much of what is said in the media is is grotesquely distorted and does not reflect the, the reality that we live in, uh, where campaigners are embedded in journalistic outfits and don't act as journalists or writers or thinkers, but just act as campaigners. And all of this makes the world unnecessarily complex for all of us. It uh, is furthermore the case, to my mind, that we live in an era where 
uh, everything that has been good in our civilization, in Western civilization, is being derided and pulled down by people who are opposed to it. And I'm not opposed to it. Uh, I'm very much in favor of the civilization which has given birth not just uh, to us, but to, I think, the greatest opportunities ever invented for human freedom and for human well-being. And I don't want to see these things simply given up uh, by people who don't realize their great good luck, our great good luck. Let's cut straight to that uh, puncturing of pomposities. You you heard that clip there with uh, one of the the um, members of the 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 uh, beautiful crowd, the elite as they see themselves, making a comment that really was less comedy than actual factual observation. That uh, they're at this event celebrating themselves at the Emmys. Um, it's already been criticized as an eminently white event. They preach diversity, but there was, I think, one person of color who won anything. They're in a massive enclosed environment. None of them are wearing masks except the poor people that pour their champagne. Uh, here's the, the big question. The hypocrisy seems to know no ends, Douglas. Why is there not a point at which the House of Cards collapses in on itself? As long as we have the, the Jeff Bezos of the world, the George Soroses, the Richard Bransons, will, will the market forces and the effect of common sense on the Western world simply be um, nugatory? Well, I, I think that almost everybody who is described as a comedian, particularly in American society, um, couldn't make anyone laugh, honestly. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I watch with great bemusement as the, the so-called comedians of American culture, particularly on the late night talk shows, uh, they, they don't affect the corners of my mouth by a millimeter, certainly not upwards. Uh, they can't rustle up any laughter from me. Uh, and I don't think they can from very many people, actually. Um, Seth Rogen is just one example, but I mean, um, you know, people like John Oliver have just turned into very, they've turned from second rate comedians into first rate scolds. They now just appear on air and on camera and they tell off the people they think of as stupid people. And they make ill-informed, half-baked political arguments. And these people are, are called comedians. Uh, there's nothing comic about them that they know of. Um, and, and I think that this is, this is a good example of it. What happened at the Emmys this week is very like what happened at the Met Gala last week. We see this very ugly, ugly, divided society where um, a certain type of posturing figure um, I mean, we had the, the, the Met with you know, pr prominent figures. We don't need to name them. Not just talking about taxing the rich, but calling for, for equal rights for women, as if women don't have equal rights in American society. And, and there they are parading these, frankly, uh, tired tropes. And alongside them are the serving class, the servant class in the new America, who, among other things, have to obey the rules that the elite class don't have to obey. So if you're lucky enough to be a so-called comedian or one of the beautiful people, as you say, at the Emmys, or one of the elite 
at the Met Gala. You can swan in, you can have yourself photographed in your beautiful outfit or multiple, multiple outfits, and you don't have to mask. But the common people, as you say, serving the champagne or, or handing you your hors d'oeuvres at the Met Gala, they've got a mask up because the rules are for certain people and not for others. And that's completely consistent with the worldview of these people. But is there any limit to it? At what point does this collapse upon itself? Is this something that's perpetually self-sustaining, like a perpetual motion machine? What, I mean, you, you are committed to pointing out that the, the emperor is naked. What is your expectation? Is there any end to this hypocrisy? I, I think there is, among other things. It's when, as you say, as you refer to the emperor's new clothes-like phenomenon, what's dangerous for this class of person is not people who dislike them. It's people who see through them. And frankly, we can all see through these people now. They have become completely transparent. We're, we are at the point in the story where the boy who points out that the emperor has got no clothes on is beginning to be joined by the rest of the crowd. Uh, that wasn't the case, as you know, uh, even a few years ago, really. Uh, the, the, the people who pointed out the emperor had no clothes pretty much stood alone still in the crowd. Yes. But gradually we see the crowd joining in, quite rightly. Uh, not before time, might I add. Um, they've joined in with that. Uh, you can see this, among other things, in viewing figures for some of the people I've just been talking about, the people who can't raise a smile whilst claiming to be comedians. Uh, uh, they, uh, uh, th their viewing figures uh, go through the floor unless, they've got, unless they can find something new to invent and try to rile up their audiences on. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I, I think these people have had a long run. They're going to hold on for as long as they can. But there's no doubt in my mind that they're on the way out. We're talking to Douglas Murray, the author of The Madness of Crowds and the Strange Death of Europe. Uh, we have to discuss uh, the question of COVID, the uh, rise of critical race theory, and uh, what is uh, being done on the other side of the pond to push back on the insanity. If you enjoy these interviews, if you enjoy our radio show as well, please uh, send a message far and wide. Check out our brand new store. It's sebgorkastore.com where you can get all your America First gear and most specifically the t-shirt that is flying off the shelves that we made in honor of President Trump coming on our show to celebrate that famous line from his rally if you're woke you're a loser get yours today we've already shipped those uh, t-shirts to the president you want to get one right now that's sebgorkastore.com sebgorkastore.com and you can also get copies of all three of my books the New York Times bestseller Defeating Jihad which is Sadly, more relevant than ever. Why we fight defeating America's enemies with no apologies and the most recent one, the wall for America's soul. All of those at S-E-B-G-O-R-K-A, SebGorkaStore.com. Uh, Douglas, let's uh, look at the last 18 months. Uh, it is, for me, really the, the only issue that uh, burns bright in terms of the relevance for all others. It really doesn't matter whether it's freedom of speech, uh, the sanctity of life, the second amendment what we know freedom of the press well whatever the issue is uh, it is affected by i i, I see a 
almost universal lack of courage. The idea that, that the land of the GIs and the Doughboys and the, the land of the Tommies uh, of World War II just genuflected at the altar of quote-unquote experts, shuttered themselves at home when they were healthy. I'm not talking about the vulnerable parts of our society. It makes one doubt the efficacy of of the people the uh, politicians are supposed to represent clawing back our freedoms. What, what is your balance sheet for the last year and a half? And how do things look uh, on the other side of the Atlantic? And, and how uh, despondent are you when it comes to our response to the, the COVID fascists? Well, my own view is that uh, this has been a, a, like a scrambling device over our societies. You know, we, we already had enough complexity in our societies before COVID came along. And COVID came and it sort of added an extra scrambling layer in front of our vision. Everything that political leaders wanted to achieve was suddenly smashed. Uh, and we had this extra problem in front of us. You know, President Trump had his agenda uh, that he'd been elected to fulfill. And then COVID comes along and he has to shut down the world's most booming economy. Uh, it's the same in country after country. And uh, of course, as I never tire to point out, the only country in the world that, come, that came out of 2020 with projected growth was China. Yes. Um, so this, this was, this was, um, de- was either deliberately or accidentally one of the most extraordinary WMD attacks in history. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party, when it knew that the COVID virus had come out, when it knew that it was there, that it, they shut down the commercial airlines internally in China and they allowed the planes to fly out. So you can say they did it deliberately or you can say that they did it with some knowledge of what was happening, but this is at their door. And uh, uh, the world, it seems to me, among other things, has got distracted onto lots of other things. And I worry about this. I very much worry about it. I worry that in America we have got, um, like in Britain and elsewhere, we've got distracted onto mask debates, for instance. You know, exactly how many masks you should have on your face before you go for a run in Central Park sort of debates. And these, to me, are a great distraction. I think my own um, view on it is that people should be trusted more than they have been trusted in making decisions for themselves and their families about their own health. That's very much my view that that I'm deeply, deeply suspicious of uh, government telling people uh, what to do. But I do think that they can give advice and then, then we choose what to do. But what I worry in all of this has been going on has been that we have basically got distracted from the main issue. And the main issue has been that China released a WMD virus across the globe. It has smashed all of our economies, and we need to concentrate on that. And uh, when you see it in that light, it becomes a lot clearer. But in the meantime, there's this fog in front of all of us and officials elected and unelected have not helped that i i i think that one of the additional things that needs to be said about this is that different countries have reacted in different ways but they've all reacted similarly they've all uh, every democratic government has has reacted similarly and they have all shut down their they all shut down their economies at least for a time they all had some form of lockdown and all of this means 
that we've had a sort of test. And my view is that this is not the big virus. No, this is a virus. It's a real virus. There are vulnerable people who can die from it. But that is not what we have been told. We have not been told an honest account of this. And this is causing this scrambling device I just described to get infinitely worse. For instance, the main issue in your uh, in your the possible lethality of the virus in your system is whether you have an underlying health condition, including whether you are very overweight. Right. And we have heard nothing from senior officials and health officials in the U.S. government and outside it talking about that. We, we, we've, we've had no health campaign on obesity. We've had no highlight of that, which actually could have been quite useful. There's all sorts of things we just haven't done. And so, so people have become more and more suspicious. And that's why I hear, as I'm sure you hear, all manner of crazy conspiracies about this. Because unfortunately, many of our officials have simply not been honest with us. Well, let's, let's, when they have been honest, they've built dishonesty upon honesty. So, so let, let's cut straight to that issue. So you're absolutely right on, on what we should be looking at. I, I learned this in the first few weeks in the White House when I came in to do counterterrorism. But once I had the clearances and read all the intelligence, I realized the only real threat we face is China. Everything else is is manageable. So we'll, we'll yeah. put that to one side for a second. But, but let's Let's deal with the, the, the rampant conspiracy theories that kind of kill critical thought on, on both sides of, of the aisle. So what is it, given, given your very incisive, trenchant observations, what is your conclusion as to why the elites, why the quote-unquote experts are doing what they're doing? Why are they focusing on the, the multiple masks and, and immunizing healthy children, which is sheer insanity? Mm-hmm. Um, is, is it... Um, risk aversion? Is it drunkenness with power? If, I, I don't believe in the master conspiracy. I, 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 I far prefer Occam's razor and uh, mm. mediocrity and, 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 and stupidity and irrig- uh, irrig- uh, ignorance. What is Douglas Murray's take on why, why, they've, why they have behaved the way they have behaved in the halls of power? Well, I, I, I think that you put your finger on it when you talk about the fact, the, the, among other things, the fact that they want zero uh, mortality figures or zero COVID. I mean, we can see where that leads to in the most extreme example in the world, which is New Zealand. Uh, uh, New Zealand recently shut down the country again when there was one case of COVID. Uh, it, it's unimaginable yeah. that this could be the case. You know, that, that New Zealand would, would, would once again shutter the economy because of one case of COVID. By the way, you wouldn't want to be that guy, would you? <laughs> Uh, um, but but, but this, is, this is what we also see very troublingly in Australia. And uh, I, my own view has, 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 has emerged over time has been that this is not the correct approach. But at the beginning, the governments all did something similar because we were trying to work out what this was, what this is. We've known what it is for quite a long time now. Uh, so we've known, among other things, that we're not going to just get rid of the virus and that we're going to have to live with it in some way to some extent. And what I think has happened, what certainly happened at the beginning, and this is a generous interpretation, perhaps, but I think it's correct, is that the governments not didn't want to have a higher mortality figure than any of their neighbours. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to have been held up as being too reckless with the general public's health. So there was no... Um, there was no disincentive not to do the hardest things on the books. You know, there was no nothing to put them off 
saying to people, don't leave your homes or don't do business, don't go out and so on. And over time, of course, we did get to more sensible policies. And by the way, the USA has been, I think, the world leader in this. And there's a very good reason, which is which is simply the makeup of the country. Yeah. God bless America for having state rights. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The the idea that you and I know. Yeah. You and I know, don't we? If you look across Europe, for instance, everybody in France has to do what the French government tells you. You know, everybody in uh, in the Czech Republic has to do what the government tells them in Germany and France and elsewhere. Right. Thank goodness that in America you can choose where to be. It, you you can move around if you've got the ability to do so and the flexibility to do so, and you can go to a place which encourages you to live life as you would like to live it. And that is a massive advantage that this country has, and and it shouldn't be ignored. That. No, it is, uh, you know, the founding fathers were geniuses because having a republic of states bakes in the principle of subsidiarity that one should solve a problem closest to the people where the problem occurs. And that is not possible in states with unitary systems of power like France. Absolutely. And by by the way, there was a very clear example I had of that last year when I was traveling around the U.S. uh, ahead of the election. Uh, I went straight from uh, Seattle uh, uh, where I was uh, covering what remained of the, uh, you remember, the semi-autonomous zone that Antifa <laughs> set up, yeah. uh, having vi- gone to visit Antifa in Portland. I went from Portland and Seattle, which were two wastelands, uh, to cover then next a uh, Trump rally in Pensacola, Florida. And I can tell you, this was not just like moving between different states, but moving between different planets. Yeah, it was a, like uh, Kandahar um, to Paris, I'm sure. Uh, follow this man right now. He's got almost 400,000 followers on Twitter. Let's get him over the edge today by the end of this interview. He's Douglas K. Murray on Twitter, the author of The Madness of Crowds and The Strange Death of Europe. Please check out his website as well, douglasmurray.net. To quote... Uh, Douglas, that I think it was Lenin. Yes, it was Lenin with his uh, famous question, his infamous question, what is to be done? In addition to everybody buying and reading your books, what is to be done? We, we focus a lot. Let's put China to a side for one second. We need Donald Trump, my old boss, back in the White House. He will run. I guarantee you he's going to run. And then he'll declare trade war in China again. And, you know, we'll, we'll be back to securing the border and crushing the jihadis, unlike the last nine months. But what is to be done for the readers of your book, books, uh, parents, people who believe in the Western tradition, who believe in objective truth, beauty. Um, wh- what is the thing that has to happen now? We don't want to rely upon our leaders. So let- let's have a very short to-do list for everyone listening to this show, Douglas. Well, I can give you, um, I can't give you an entire list, but I can give you a good example. And that's something that's been happening at American school boards in recent months. Right. Uh, I, I wrote in the Madness of Crowds about what we now know as CRT, critical race theory, this horrible, horrible invention of a few total frauds at a few American universities in recent decades. That's now been spilt out, not just across the school sector, but across the public and private sectors in the US. One of the things that I hoped, and I said in the Madness of Crowds, I hoped would happen, would be that not that people wouldn't rely on other people to be the firefighter, but to realize that everybody is the firefighter themselves. Everybody has the chance in their own lives somewhere 
to make the necessary difference. And parents across America, and I've said this a number of times on Fox recently, parents across America have been standing up at school board meeting after school board meeting in state after state and saying, you are not getting away with this. You are not teaching our children this rancid set of Marxist theories. You're not doing it. And I give that as an example of hopefulness because very often people have grand explanations of exactly what we have to do or where we have to move. And my belief, it's a conservative belief, it's a Burkean belief, is that it requires small platoons of people to make society. And these small platoons in America have got going in recent months and they are making a difference. And it is, to my mind, things like that that will not just provide an example, but will provide a way through and out for the American Republic in the years ahead. I think you're absolutely right. It, it is electrifying to watch these school board meetings and uh, <laughs> Americans taking back their country one municipality at a time and, and then seeing the school board directors shutting down debate, excluding the actual parents from the meetings, tells you exactly who they are. You wrote, let's look at where you hail from. You wrote the, your, the, the first amazing book, The Strange Death of Europe. What is is the state of Europe today? Is it moribund? Is it is it twitching in the ER? Give us the latest update, if you would. Well, uh, Europe has had a very rough 18 months like everywhere else. And as I mean, we're going to see, aren't we? We're going to see what happens in the months to come economically. Uh, uh, you know, I, I've taken to saying to people who think that life is going to continue as normal and that the economy is going to continue as normal. I say, well, that's fine, but just don't look down. Uh, Because beneath us, beneath us all on this is a heck of a chasm. You know, uh, borrowing at record highs. Never, never has there been a government borrowing like this in peacetime. Record spending, record GDP contraction. And uh, we, we, on the way out of this across Europe, like in America, we can't just stagger through this. I'm stunned by people who think that we can just sort of return to February 2020 and that will be fine. It, it, it won't be. And the economies of Europe are in real trouble. Uh, now, of course, there's all sorts of other tensions. What I wrote about in The Strange Death of Europe primarily was the issue of immigration. It's highly relevant to the American context as to the Australian context and elsewhere. But the, the main thing I argue about in The Strange Death of Europe is that if you bring in people at a record rate continuously, you cannot hope to integrate them into your society. And so your society becomes something else. Now, in 2015, the migration crisis that I was talking about there saw more than a million people walk into Europe. And what we see now, and I've written about this recently in several publications, is that there is a likelihood of another surge coming Europe's way, not least because of the absolute debacle of the Afghan withdrawal by the American president, President Biden. Uh, This, I think, is going to trigger a refugee surge. There will be some people who are honestly Afghans, honestly fleeing. There will be many people behind them who are simply looking for a better quality of life, and many people behind them who will be pretending to be from Afghanistan and will not be. There will be the likelihood of a trigger, as there was with Syrian migrants in 2015. And I hope very much that European leaders have learned the lessons of 2015. But the general trajectory of Europe remains as I laid it out in that book, which is essentially that the continent is becoming somewhere else 
because of the inability of the political elites to deal with immigration, which is one of the hardest issues in the world to deal with, but one of the most important, because your country is made up by the people who are in it. And if you have, you know, a majority of one type of person in the country, you'll have one type of society, a majority of another type, and you'll have a different type of society. But our political leaders across the West, I would argue, have been very bad at acknowledging this in recent years and have pretended that the moment you walk into a country, you immediately become not just legally a citizen and a passport holder of that country, but completely part of that country in a cultural way. And I suggest that, yes, that does happen. But there's much more to it than that. You could walk across the southern border into the United States and you might indeed become a legal citizen at some point. But will you know the values of the society that you are going into? Will you know the history of it? Will you defend the history of it? Many people will and many people will not. And in Europe, it is the case, as I lay out in remorseless detail in The Strange Death of Europe, it is the case that the continent has not even bothered to try to integrate people seriously. And so it becomes a different place. Yeah, there is, of course, the philosophical impediment that if you don't believe in what the country represents, you're not going to want to uh, integrate those new arrivals into that culture. You're going to want to dismantle it first. And I think that that's even subconsciously uh, part of what we're seeing in terms of open borders on either sides of of the Atlantic. Um, Dear friends, uh, please support another truth teller par excellence. He is, of course, America's Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Uh, The left is trying to destroy him, strip him of his law licenses and get him behind bars. Help support the man who is finding out the truth of the election in last November. Uh, Please go to RudyGiulianiFreedomFund.com. Support the man who brought New York back from the brink twice, first when it was the crime wave of the 1980s and then after September 11th. Please support my good friend Rudy Giuliani, freedomfund.com. That's Rudy Giuliani, freedomfund.com. Uh, Douglas, two, two uh, big, big questions left for me. Um, number one, you're, you're a tad younger than I am. I, I believe the demographic of the people who follow you is probably younger than the, the, those that listen to my daily radio show or my TV show. What is your estimation when we look at the the indoctrination of the millennials? I have a a sense that it's shocking when you read the the statistics, YouGov, etc., that more than 60% of American millennials would prefer to live in a socialist or communist America. However, there there is a a, a positive aspect, uh, I believe, that the level of indoctrination of of the youth is is rather shallow. This isn't the indoctrination of, you know, a, a Soviet Union or a Warsaw Pact. Therefore, it can be punctured rather rapidly is that what you see as well, or do you think it's deeper than that? That's what I see as well. I think that there is a there is a, a shallowness which is actually starting to pass. My own experience, certainly when you could still do live events before the virus uh, came about, my own experience was that the smarter young people coming up behind the millennials were much, much more receptive to right. sensible arguments about this. That there had we sort of effectively maxed out on the indoctrination among the millennials. And there's quite a lot of obvious reasons for that. Um, one is 
most young people don't want to just be told what to do and follow a boring set of prescriptions of how to behave, what to say, exactly what to do, what pronouns to use, what pronouns not to use. They don't, you know, they recognize that being young is about a lot more than that. Uh, being free is about a lot more than that. So these, I think of the sort of woke karate as like a Puritan sect, you know, one of the less attractive Puritan sects. And it went around the land hitting people over the head, metaphorically and sometimes actually, to tell them to come in line with their own particular dogmas. And of course, smarter, younger people coming up underneath them don't want to have any part in that. They don't want to be scolded all the time. They don't want to be told what to do. And Why the hell should they? Uh, they want to be able to discuss ideas. They want to try things out. They want to make mistakes. I mean, remember that, as you say, I mean, we're not far away in age. And I think when we were young, we were able to make mistakes. You try things <laughs> out when you're young. That's one of the points. You know, right. you grow up. And you learn. Uh, uh, you learn. And uh, the millennials or the woke uh, generation view was that you make a mistake once and if the world can discover it, then it can pulverize you and you can be destroyed for the rest of your life. It's no life. It's no life. It's a deeply, among other things, it's a deeply unchristian point of view. It has no room at all for forgiveness, as I point out in The Madness of Crowds. It doesn't even bother itself with the question of forgiveness. It's a remorseless, unforgiving puritanical, joyless worldview. And people coming up under it have recognized that. Now, it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the months and years ahead. But my sense is that something has turned, a corner has turned on this. Uh, and we'll see. But we need to make sure that we concentrate on institutions in particular. And institutions are what I'm worried about in America. I am deeply worried. We all know the problems of the institutions of the mainstream media. But there is, as you well know, Sebastian, there is institution after institution in the US that has been taken over effectively by cabals of its enemies. And this needs serious attention because one of the things that I think has massively spurred distrust in general in American life in recent years has been our, the public's discovery repeatedly that the institutions that claim to represent the public at multiple levels seem to oppose the public, seem not to be on the general public side, actually don't seem to like the country very much, don't like its history very much. And as you said earlier in relation to the immigration debate, that throws up this crucial oddity why would anyone want to integrate into a country that seems to think that it itself is the worst country in the world? There's no sense in it. And one of the things I would say is, trust your eyes on this. Trust the evidence. People's feet still carry them to America. Yeah. Overwhelmingly. The polls just carried out once again this year of where the most of the world wants to move to. What is the number one desired destination for the United States of America? I'm very glad to say that Great Britain is not far behind. But this is something of which we should be proud. And there is something so odd that the world wants to move to countries that are in the process of beating themselves up, of saying terrible things about themselves, of portraying themselves in a wholly negative light. Listen to America's ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, and she tells the UN General Assembly the other month that America has been racist since its birth. Yeah. 
If it was the case that America was a racist country, Linda Thomas-Greenfield would not be at the United Nations. The world would not want to come to America first and foremost. So people should trust their own eyes and their own experience. And remember, we're being told lies about the country and we don't need to believe them. You, you've mentioned the role of uh, institutions. One you haven't included is, it's weird to think of it as an institution since it started off as a business, but it is perhaps the most powerful institution in the world today, and that's social media. Can, can those who, who believe in the nation state, in Judeo-Christian values, that uh, the West is the greatest culture the world has ever seen, can, can we win Douglas Murray if uh, social media is on the side of the iconoclasts who wish to tear everything down? uh, It's absolutely the most important question, and we're going to have to see. We're going to have to see. Maybe we can and maybe we can't. The might of the social media companies is extraordinary. Uh, We know that if this had happened in the 1980s, these companies would have been broken up long ago by monopolies and mergers, commissions, and much more. You know, if you, with the old media, if you wanted to buy another paper and you already owned a paper, you had to go through an awful lot of um, hoops and jumps to get the right to do that. Uh, With the new media, you can basically own not just what everyone is allowed to say, but what they're allowed to think and to know. And, and no one took an interest in it. Um, and, and we were late. Everyone was late to the game on this. But the social media companies have far too much power. They don't know what to do with it. Uh, to, um, to steal a quote from one of my favorite authors, Evelyn War. Uh, watching the social media companies talking about free speech is watching a, is like watching a, a very delicate and ancient vase in the hands of a chimpanzee. Uh, they they have no idea what they're talking about, and they stumble around and they fumble and they they look as if they don't care if they smash the whole damn thing. And uh, so these these companies are not fit for purpose. My own hope is that uh, the authorities crack down on them. Uh, I hope that does happen because they, they cannot do what they claim uh, to want to do. You and I know, and all of, all of our listeners today know, experiences of the, the new media claiming that things are true, that are completely untrue, and claiming that things are lies, which we know to be true. And this has caused and will continue to cause incredible anxiety and angst across the world until such a time as the social media companies have this extreme power wrestled from their hands. It is not, in my view, within Facebook or Twitter's ability to decide or to have the right to decide what you or I or anyone else in the world can know. It's not their job. They're not fit to perform that job. And it's not just audacious, but disgraceful that they were ever allowed to try it. Indeed, and it is the most burning issue uh, facing us right now. We're talking to the author of The Madness of Crowds and the Strange Death of Europe. Follow him right now, Douglas K. Murray, on Twitter. If you enjoy our longer discussions with our very special guests, don't forget to subscribe and send these links to your friends. It's America First. Wherever you get your podcasts, America First One-on-One is our new platform. That's America First One-on-One. Subscribe today and tell those who also believe in truth and beauty. Uh, Douglas, uh, let me uh, finish by asking you this. Um, 
unlike there are very few thought leaders today and especially amongst the political community you're, you're one of those thought leaders and god bless you for your courage one of the the other ones who's having a tremendous impact is is jordan peterson and we've mm. i think we've had him on the show or we're having him on the show he just sent me his latest book um and I have an issue with Jordan Peterson, very bright guy, mm. uh, very brave for his stand against the Canadian government for, for bringing in these dictatorial, fascistic uh, language laws that he stood up to. However, his image or, or his style, his métier is very dark. It, it focuses on the tragic, on, 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 the, on the, um, the dark reality of, of human existence. And I wanted to ask you, are you, are you an optimist by nature? Uh, most Americans are by dint of how our nation was born. Where, where does Douglas sit in the pantheon of, of dark and light and optimist and pessimist? Well, um, that's a very difficult question to answer, and it varies hour by hour, <laughs> I would say. Um, I, I don't think that any of us um, have that extreme and either optimism or pessimism gene within us. We, you can certainly, the evidence shows that you can vary uh, in, in your life. But the most important thing is what happens to you in your life. Um, people, it's much more easy to be optimistic if the world has been kind to you. Um, and if it hasn't been, then it's much easier to fall into very dark places. Uh, but this isn't just, and this is one of the things that Jordan does argue, uh, this isn't just in the world's gift, it's in your gift to affect yes. that as well. Uh, you know, I, I, often, I often give the example of what do you do with your luck? You know, you, you, can see, you, can, you can see the situation of people living in America today and you can say, for instance, oh, there's inequality and there's uh, unfairness and there are some people who don't have what they want and what they need. And, and you can come to the conclusion that you're living in the worst country in the world. Or you can open the window and just look at the whole miracle of the thing. I mean, the fact that we're here. I mean, th 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 this, this varies from person to person depending on your life experience. And I would say that there are many reasons and many places in the world where you can look out and feel very bleak about things. But if you are in a society which genuinely allows um, people to flourish, then I think optimism is inevitably going to be more your stance than it would otherwise. Now, what we all worry about in America today is obvious. It's we worry, as we do across the whole Western world, about whether or not if you labor hard at what you're good at, you will be rewarded. And it was the deal in recent generations that you were. And many of us have felt in recent years that that's changed and that effectively something's missing. You know, people work really hard and they don't get what they thought they were going to get out of it. And this curdles people, it ruins people, it makes people depressed, it makes people feel isolated and alone. And, and I, want, I want us really across left and right, I think there are issues that we can solve, but we can only solve them if we look at them honestly. And honestly, in America today, we have to find the solutions to the things we're commonly worried about and answer those things because they can be answered. You know, America put a man on the moon first. So we can solve things like the terrible homelessness that exists in American cities. Mainly, it has to be said, in Democrat states. Um, we can solve these problems. 
And we can be optimistic about the future if we think the future is going to give us what we want and what we hope for. The well, reason why people are pessimistic is because they think they will not be rewarded after they've worked hard. Yes, and, and optimism is a, a natural default if you believe you're a master of your own destiny. If, you're yes. a, if you believe you're a victim, forever to be victimized, and of course you're going to be a pessimist. Thank you for that yes. clarification. Last question. What is the most significant things uh, our listeners and viewers can do, according to Douglas Murray, starting today that will make a difference? Where should they begin if they're uh, as concerned as we are, Douglas? Um, my, my suggestion is always to start local. Uh, there are far too many people who think that their role in life is to change something at a level they cannot change things at. Um, you know, uh, you, you can't yes. change Joe Biden's mind on something. I mean, only he can change his mind. And I don't even know if that's possible <laughs> at this stage. But the point is, is, is that there are too many people who think that they can reach things that are just beyond reach. And we're all guilty of it to some extent. And the thing that's always more achievable is the thing in front of you. There's a wonderful character in one of Dickens's novels in Bleak House. And she's a great example of the 21st century type we know that Dickens is writing about in the 19th century. And Mrs. Jellaby is first encountered raising money for an obscure tribe somewhere in Africa. And when we first meet her, one of her 12 or so children has his head stuck in the railings outside the house. And she doesn't have time to even notice him, <laughs> let alone remove his head from the railings. And I give this as an example because this is a perennial human type. And in our age, we've fallen into this in disproportionate numbers. But we can, whether or not we can uh, affect things at a high level, we can all affect the things near us to, to some great extent whether it's a school board, whether it's talking to family members and friends, or much more. There are things we can all do at, at an immediate level. And that's where differences are made, because if enough people do that, then you have a movement. Thank you for taking me back in a time machine almost 40 years to when I had to read Bleak House in school <laughs> in West London. You've been a superlative guest. The book is The Madness of Crowds, a uh, title that may be familiar for other reasons. Follow this man at Douglas K. Murray and at DouglasMurray.net. I'm Sebastian Gorka. As ever, keep your head on a swivel, watch your six, hold the line, never give up, never give in, and stay frosty. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.